Let's, uh, this morning, let's pray before we come to God's Word, Colossians 1. Our Father, we do pray, even as we just sung a prayer, that you would speak to us. That you would this morning open your Word, that we would be reminded that this is not voice from man, These are not idle words, that this is not like the chatter we hear on the radio or watching our televisions, that this is truly a resounding voice from the heavens. This is, as we sung, authoritative. This is true. This is good for our souls. We pray that it would be so this morning. It requires the work of your Spirit, so pour out your Spirit and speak to us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29, and this is the holy and errant word of God. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to a saint. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home like you children that are in this room this morning. Uh, And there are many disadvantages to that. Probably chief among those is that I didn't grow up really knowing much of the Word of God. Didn't read the Bible, didn't hear many of the stories of the Bible, knew very little what was in the Bible. But my freshman year of college changed everything. My freshman year of college, I encountered the two great loves of my life. The Lord and this godly, beautiful, blonde-haired soccer-playing, artistic young lady. And I remember one night early in this romance of the ages, we were sitting on the student recreation center steps outside at night, and the stars were in the sky, and there we were discussing our dreams and our hopes and our aspirations and staring into one another's eyes, and time just stopped. And then she interrupted it all. By asking a question. She said, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Now, as a young Christian, someone who had just come to Saving Faith, I had read very little of the Bible at this point. And so, I did what any self-respecting man would do in such a moment, not wanting this romance for the ages to end with a moment of, of sheer ignorance. I said, I would really like to know first, what is your favorite book of the Bible? (laughs) Showing that humility and self-sacrifice and putting others before myself, she, she was impressed and she said, well, my favorite book of the Bible is the Psalms. What could have been interpreted as trying to stall for a little more time, but I'm sure was motivated out of a desire just to know more about her. I, I asked Why is it that you love the Psalms so much? She said, it's because David just pours out his soul before God in the Psalms. 
And then she asked, she said, what is your favorite book of the Bible? And I said, well, mine is the Psalms too. <laughs> this was a relationship that was destined to be, clearly. And the rest is history. Most Christians, at least ones that have read a little bit of the scriptures, begin to have favorite books of the Bible or favorite characters in the Bible or favorite passages in the Bible. And our passage this morning is one of my favorites. became so probably a dozen or so years ago. I remember as a newly minted pastor reading through the book of Colossians and coming here to this section and seeing here in verses 28 and 29 what I think is Paul's motto for his ministry. If you were to ask Paul what defines his ministry, this would be what he would tell us. I thought if that is good enough for the Apostle Paul, then that is good enough for any pastor that follows him. So these kind of became my life ministry verses. In the Colossian church, as we have seen in previous weeks, there were false teachers who were peddling a false gospel. And it appears that as they were peddling this false gospel, that they were also attacking Paul as a pastor and as a preacher. Now this seems to be the case because Paul will talk about the fact in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. These false teachers were good orators, they were good communicators, they had sound arguments, or what seemed like sound arguments to these Colossian hearers, and Paul was warning them not to be taken in by persuasive speeches or persuasive talk. He even feel the need to encourage the Colossians about Epaphras, the, the man that had delivered this gospel to the Colossian church. He will remind them in the early part of this book and then again at the end of this book that Epaphras delivered the truth to them, that they can trust this gospel. It must have been that these false teachers were saying Paul's ministry and Epaphras' ministry, they're mundane, they're, they're simple, they're boring, they're not dynamic. We know this about the Apostle Paul, he will say in a few different sections of his letters that he was not known as an orator. He, he was not a man that, that people thought gave great speeches. So Paul here is declaring to them in a kind of defense of who he is, what his ministry is about, but he's also laying down here the, the, the very marks of his ministry it is that, that shapes it, what defines it. And it's not defined by humor or charisma or even persuasive words. What defines Paul's ministry is that he is a servant of God by being a servant of God's people, by being a servant of God's word. He serves God by serving God's people, by serving God's word. It's our three points this morning from the text. A minister of the gospel is a servant of God, a servant of God's people, and a servant of God's word. First, Paul notes that he is a servant of God. If you look back up at verse 23, he will use this language twice. In verse 23 and verse 24, he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then he says there in verse uh, 25, I'm sorry, verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister. As Paul understands that he was called by God. God placed a call upon his life. He didn't declare himself an apostle. He didn't declare himself a pastor. That, that declaration came from God. That calling came from God. And so Paul understands that his entire ministry is a service unto God. Of God. He's a servant of God. And this must be the starting place for all ministry. For a minister above all else, he must see himself as God's man. If he's not God's man, though he may claim the title of minister, he is no minister. 
Think about Paul and even pastors in our own local churches. Think about Paul here or think about him in the ministries that he had in different churches or you think about pastors that are scattered around this world in different local churches. They, they, they aren't men who are to serve the Lord just on a Sunday morning or even the 24 hours of Sunday from Sunday morning to Sunday evening. Or even from 9 to 5, Tuesday through Sunday. Rather, their entire life is to be marked by this call. It isn't a job. It's a life. It's a calling. But notice the second point. Paul understands that he was called as a servant of God to be a servant of God's people. That this stewardship from God was given to Paul, he says in verse 25, for you. You see, many want to be servants of God. But to be servants of His people is quite another thing. That's a little harder, isn't it? But if one would serve God, they will find it impossible apart from serving God's people. In early Christianity, there were what we called the the early desert fathers. They were these different monks that would go out into the desert and try to live a hermit's life where they were just living their life alone to God. And I love it that the great father of this movement, St. Anthony the Great, as he is called, this first man, this desert father that went out to live by himself alone, that he could never get alone. He would go out into the desert and then people would come after him because they heard of his holiness and and how wonderful he was, and they wanted to learn from him. And so people would follow him into the desert, so he'd move farther into the desert. And guess what? They would follow him farther into the desert. It just kept going on and on and on. He couldn't get away from God's people. He had disciples. Thinking on the subject of serving God by serving God's people, my mind often runs to that passage at the end of the Gospel of John, where, where Peter is meeting with the resurrected Christ. and Peter has just denied the Lord three times, and now the resurrected Christ is meeting with Peter on the beach, and, and Jesus will ask Peter, you'll remember three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, ever ready with a bold answer, immediately says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. So Jesus each time says in reply, you care for my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know it. Care for my sheep, feed my sheep, love my sheep. The minister is called by God to serve God by serving God's people. To love Him by loving His people. And it's not so different for all the rest in the church. It's the same. Paul sees his entire life in light of this calling. He says in Philippians that he rejoices that his life is being poured out as a drink offering upon their lives of faith. The drink offering, the most menial offering that there is in all the scriptures. Paul says, I'm happy for my life to look like that. To be poured out for you. I rejoice in that. He even sees his suffering in this life as an opportunity to serve God's people. And he rejoices at it. Look at verse 24. It's a little strange, isn't it? I think every time I read it, he, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul says he's rejoicing in his afflictions because he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. If Paul was ever heretical, this is it. But what's lacking in in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body? Have you lost all your marbles, Paul? No, nothing is lacking. We know that nothing is lacking because Paul's already told us that multiple times in the book of Colossians. 
If you go back to verse 22, he says this. He says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's done. Or you go back before that and you go to verse 20 of chapter 1, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's finished. Or you go back up all the way to verses 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's accomplished. It's all done. Paul has told us time and time again. It's complete. The afflictions of Christ are enough. What does he mean? That he's filling up what's left. I think it may be helpful to remember that call in Acts 9 upon Paul's life to give us a little bit of insight here. You remember in Acts 9 where Paul, it wasn't his name at the time, it was Saul, was on his way to Damascus. And Saul, this great persecutor of Christians and enemy of Christians was rounding up Christians and throwing them into jail and, and even standing by while and consenting to some of them being put to death as we watch him stand and everybody lays their garments at his feet as Stephen is stoned to death. And Paul is on his way to Damascus to round up more Christians and maybe even put more to death. And all of a sudden while he is on that road, he is blinded by a great light from the sky. He's struck blind, and he falls on his knees, and, and he hears, he and all of his companions hear from the heavens his voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul answers, and, and he, he asks a question, he says, who is it, Lord? The voice says, this is Jesus, who you are persecuting. What's happening here? Paul has never met the Lord Jesus. Not until that moment. So how could he be persecuting him? Because he was persecuting his people. And Christ is the head of the body. That is the church. And so as the church suffers, as the church is persecuted, it is tantamount to Christ being persecuted. Christ suffered. We're united. You also remember in Acts 9 that God says to Ananias when he sends him out to go find the Apostle Paul, he tells him that he must find Paul because he's going to use Paul for great things. And he also says, I must show him how much he's going to suffer for my sake, for my name. God's people will suffer for the sake of God. That's just part of our discipleship. This world is filled with Affliction, and we as Christians are no stranger to it. In fact, as Christians, we may even expect more than the average person because this is not our own. And as they persecute our Lord, the world and sin and Satan and his demons, so they will persecute his body. But the affliction that we endure is all under the sovereign eye of God. And He has decreed that there is only so much suffering that we will endure in this life. It's not unending. There's an appointed amount, there's a predetermined measure of afflictions that the church, the saints, the people of God, the body of Christ must endure before Christ returns. You see this picture in Revelation 6 where you remember all the martyrs are below the altar of God, and, and they're crying out, Oh, Sovereign Lord. They, they, they note that He's sovereign. Oh, Sovereign Lord. How long until justice comes on the earth and the wicked are punished for putting us to death? Remember that they are told that they should rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their fellow brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. A certain number. A certain number, a defined amount of suffering. 
there's only an appointed amount of suffering for Christ's body to endure before Christ returns. And so Paul sees his suffering as part of his service to God's people. Because he's saying, look, I'm filling up. I'm filling up what is lacking, that there is, all, there is so much affliction that's going to happen to the body of Christ, and I'm filling part of that up. And the more I fill up, less the rest of the body has to fill up. Yeah. Different perspective on our suffering in this life. It can alter and change everything. He says he rejoices in verse 24. Because it's yet another way that he serves God by serving God's people. My suffering is a way that I serve you. Your suffering is a way that you serve me in the body of Christ. This truth has been incredibly comforting me over the years. I remember stumbling upon it uh, probably about 10 years ago when we were going through a difficult time for the sake of gospel ministry. I remember returning this passage over and over again. So some, suffering is never something we seek. It is seldom something that is welcome, but it is always something that is beneficial. But if you are like me, there are times when you've had enough of all of these benefits. You know, you, you know the teaching of Scripture. You know that, that our suffering allows us to enter into fellowship with Christ, the one who suffered. And you know that it refines us. You know that it sanctifies us. You know that it matures us in Christ. And if you're weak like me, you get to points where you say, I've had about as much maturing as I can take. I've had enough. In such moments, I've found this verse to be of great comfort. It helps me to see that my suffering is in a much bigger picture. My trials aren't just about me. They're not just about my sanctification and my growing in grace. It's a way that I serve God's people. And I let my mind run with that. I start thinking, ah, oh, it's not only of service to God's people now, but it's of service to God's people forever, for those that will come after me, for the church tomorrow, and the church of tomorrow's tomorrow, and the, the suffering that, that I go through in this life, the afflictions that I face for the sake of Christ, that, that they're benefiting men and women and children that I will never meet until glory. Christian, your suffering hastens the day when Christ shall return and his body shall no longer suffer affliction. Suffering means less suffering for others. And as you suffer for Christ, you serve us. You are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. There is great comfort. Suffering matters and just for me. The ultimate way, though, that Paul sees himself as a servant of God by being a servant of God's people is by being a servant of God's word. He says in verse 25 that his stewardship is to make the word of God fully known. He's determined, he says, to preach this mystery of the gospel, the whole counsel of God as he will say in the book of Acts, to the people of God. And it's preaching that takes center stage in, in the Apostle Paul's ministry. This is the great principle, the, the, the demanding principle of the, the minister's life is to preach, to make the word known. He says it's to make this mystery, as he calls it, which has been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed fully known. What is this mystery? Paul is surely speaking about the inclusion of Gentiles in 
to God's redemptive plan. This would have been a surprise to many Jews that God is drawing people from every tribe and nation and every ethnic group on the face of the earth and that He is bringing them in to this redemptive plan of salvation. And it would have been even more shocking to the Jews that it wasn't as if the Gentiles were being brought into Israel, but that, as Paul says in Ephesians, that God is making one new man in place of the two, so that now Gentiles and Jews stand united in one body before God. One Lord, one faith, one salvation, one body. Christ himself being the head. But the center of the mystery, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 2, is Christ. He says he struggles to encourage the saints that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The mystery is now revealed. And it's nothing less and it's nothing more than Christ, he says. We preach Christ, Paul says. In fact, he says in verse 28, it's him we proclaim. All the mystery of who Christ would be, what he would do, what he would teach, what he would command is now fully revealed. For for Paul, Christ is the beginning and he is the middle and he is the end of all of his preaching, of all of his ministry. He knows that to serve God by serving God's people, by serving God's word, the message he proclaims must be Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. It's one of the convictions that led me to reform theology. I was a, was a seminary student, and uh, as a seminary student, you have to take preaching classes. And I was at a seminary that belongs to a different Christian tradition and In that preaching class, I was given a proverb to preach. And as in all seminary classes on preaching, you have to create an outline of the sermon that you're going to preach, and then you would present that outline to the professor for critique before you would get up and you would preach this sermon before the rest of your peers. And I remember going to my professor with that proverb and with an outline and saying, Professor, I don't know how to preach Christ from this proverb. And I remember him looking at me and saying, Jason, you can't preach Christ from this text. It's a proverb. And I remember my little mind going, wait, I'm going to be a Christian preacher, but I can't preach Christ from some text. That sent me scurrying. Find out what else was out there. Does that seem problematic in my mind? What does a preacher have to preach but Christ? Charles Spurgeon told the story of a young pastor who had been preaching in the presence of a godly seasoned old pastor. And after he had finished his sermon, he went to that old minister and he said, What did you think of my sermon? A very poor sermon indeed, said the old pastor. A poor sermon, said the young pastor. It took me a long time to study to preach it. Aye, no doubt it did, said the old pastor. Do you not think my explanation of the text was good, asked the young man. Oh, yes, said the old preacher. Very good indeed. Well, then why did you say it was a poor sermon? Don't you think the metaphors were appropriate and the arguments were conclusive? Yes, they were very good as far as that goes, said the old pastor. But still, it was a very poor sermon. Will you tell me why you think it was a poor sermon, said the young pastor. Because, said the godly man, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ. Always we must preach what is in the text. So the old man said, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road that leads to London. Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old pastor. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business when you get to a text is to say, now what is the road to Christ? 
and then preach a sermon running along the road toward the great metropolis Christ. And said the old seasoned pastor, I've never yet found a text that had not a road to Christ in it. And if ever I do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ. Amen. So it's true of your Bible study. So it's true of our Sunday school Christ must be in it. Him we proclaim. Because in Him we have everything. And apart from Him we have nothing. All the roads of Scripture lead to Him. So it is the message of every faithful minister of God seeking to serve God's people. No minister has ever served God, served God's people, or served God's Word apart from preaching Christ. George Whitfield, that famous 18th century evangelist preacher said, he said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. But these false teachers in Colossae, they, they were attempting to do so. They thought they had a better message. They were quite the orators and they were quite the persuasive speakers and they had persuasive messages, but they weren't preaching Christ. It seems that they were arguing that a greater work still needed to be accomplished in the lives of these Colossian Christians. Something more than Christ was needed. And Paul is reasserting to these Colossian Christians, you have everything that you need. You have Christ. It's not as if we come to salvation in Christ and then experience a greater blessing apart from Christ. That is taught routinely in the church today. No. Get some blessing by doing this or doing that or not doing this or not doing that. But somehow apart from Christ. All the Christians' blessings are in Christ. Think about Paul's ministry here. He does not have an evangelistic ministry that proclaims Christ. And, and then he has this second non-for-profit ministry for Christians that he then proclaims something else to them. It's the same medicine. Because it's the same disease. Christ. Christian never graduates from the school of Christ. So Paul's messages for unbelievers and believers is the same. The Christian doesn't need less of Christ, but more of Christ. And so Paul's entire preaching ministry can be summed up in Him we proclaim. Him. Christ's person. Christ's work. Christ's benefits. Christ's commands. Christ. And notice that it's a proclamation. For Paul, this is not a conversation. Preaching's not a dialogue. It's a monologue. Straight from God. Through his servant to his people. I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I like... Uh, I like on the East Coast, those old Presbyterian, Congregational, Baptist churches where the sermon's up in the air, or the pulpit's up in the air. I like that. Did you know what the picture was? The picture was is that we were all sitting underneath the Word. It has authority over us. And as it's proclaimed, you sit under it. No plexiglass see-through pulpit. Because it's not casual, it's authoritative. It's heavy. It's fixed. It's, it's rooted. It's a proclamation. Thus saith the Lord. It's not a conversation. Paul will say in Acts there when he meets with those Ephesian elders that he proclaimed this, and he, he did so with, with tears, day in and day out, for three years with them. There's a passionate 
pleading proclamation in his preaching. This is the word of God. Totally different from anything else you hear. Authoritative. Paul doesn't apologize for speaking too much about Christ. He knows that it's not only our need and our hour of conversion, but the need of every hour. We begin in Christ and we continue in Christ, and so he proclaims Christ like a herald before a king or on behalf of a king. He just keeps proclaiming Christ. How does Paul serve the word by preaching Christ? Well, he says he does so in verse 28 by warning everyone and teaching everyone. The word warning there has the idea of correction or admonishment. It, it emphasizes putting someone's mind in, in right order. He, he preaches Christ, he says, to correct error. Preaching Christ is not always equated with warm, fuzzy sermons for Paul. He doesn't shy away from sermons that are filled with corrections and even rebukes. There's a passionate pleading. But it's not just warnings that he offers. He, he also teaches, he says, there, there's a training, there, there's a building up, there, there's an, an aim at, at maturing the saints in, 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 in everything that they are in Christ, to form them. He wants to build them up so that they know more of Christ, they savor more of Christ, that they live more for Christ. And not just some of them, but every one of them. He, he says twice that his preaching is aimed at everyone, warning everyone, teaching everyone. He is not like those false teachers who had just a secret knowledge for some people. His message is for everyone. It has a scope to it, a breadth to it. He doesn't discriminate in his preaching or in his ministry. And I love this as a pastor. Notice that, that Paul could have used the plural. He could have said all men or all people. We, we warn all men. We teach all people. But that's too easy of a way to do ministry. It's kind of some conglomerate mess of people. It's quite another to minister to everyone. Every person. Paul sees his ministry in light of individuals. Each is an individual that needs Christ. Each is an individual that needs to be admonished, taught. Every person matters to him. It is under his care. Why? Because he knows the great goal that has been given to him. He says in verse 28 that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is not just preaching to check a box or ministering to the person next to him to clear his conscience. Here is pastoring that is aimed at glory. He is pastoring to present each and every single person under his care mature before the Lord Jesus Christ on that last day. He wanted them not only converted to Christ, but, but conformed to Christ. Like Christ. I think this may be one of the most frustrating and exhilarating things about ministry. I think you, you, you never know. You never know in this life whether your labors are fruitful at all, do you? You labor, you minister to people, you teach the word, you share the gospel, you encourage, you rebuke, you teach, you train. And you can make guesses, you can test some of the fruit, but you, you never know quite for sure. But did it take root? Did, did, did that actually bear fruit? Won't know until that last day. Was the sermon worth the 20 hours of preparation or even the 40 minutes of standing up here and talking? worth it to lead that Bible study and do that preparation? Was it worth it to take your lunch hour and 
meet with someone else to talk about the things of God? Is it worth it to volunteer for VBS with? Might watch some kids in the nursery. Encourage some kids with crafts. When Christ comes in His glory, we will see all the quality of, of our labors or we'll see the lack thereof. Confess that frightens and that excites me. As a pastor in this church, as an elder in this church, as a minister called to serve God by serving His people, by serving His word, I have responsibility for every one of you that are members of University Reformed Church. I'm responsible for you, along with the rest of the elders. We don't take that responsibility lightly. Every one of your souls we must give an account for. You know, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 will tell us that we all shall have to give an account, that we're naked and exposed before God. Paul will say the same thing in Romans 14, 12, where he says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, but your elders and your pastors have to give more than an account for their own soul. They have to give an account for your soul. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13 of that book, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's a story long ago about a young pastor that was complaining about how small his congregation was. An older pastor said to him, if your church was but three people, there is enough to give an account there for a lifetime of laboring with fear and trepidation. Paul understood this weight of responsibility. So he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He, he toils. It has the idea of weariness that comes as a result of one's body being beat over and over with a rod. And if that's not strong enough, he uses even a stronger word in the word struggle. It, it has the idea of a fight, a physically exhausting fight with weapons. Paul, Paul is pouring his entire physical body out, everything that he has. As a servant of God, by serving his people, by serving the world. Entire life. Gives it all. Even that's not enough. He wears himself out physically, but he says, with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works with him. And here's the great secret of all ministry. Is that we do it by God's strength, God's energy, utter dependence upon him. It doesn't matter. He, he wears himself out for the sake of the gospel ministry. He pours himself out for his people. He does so in God's strength. Wears himself out physically. Does it by the spiritual strength that only God can give. That is how all ministry is accomplished. It takes effort. Real effort. God empowered it. University Reformed Church has enjoyed 50 years of faithful ministry. No small part because you have demanded and you have supported ministers who serve God by serving His people, by serving His Word. And you as a congregation have done the same because you know that this is too big of a task for one man or even a group of men. So you've engaged in the same thing. In fact, you know from Ephesians 4 that Paul says that these pastor teachers, these shepherd teachers are given to you as a gift to equip you for the work of the ministry. You. Paul will echo this here in Colossians 3. He will challenge the congregation with the same language that he has just used in speaking about the pastorate. He will say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as he's speaking to the congregation, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. See, every Christian has the same charge. Serve God serving his people, serving the 
mentors. If we would continue to be a congregation that is faithful for generations, it will be by serving God, by serving His people, by serving other people. Ministry really isn't that complex, is it? If you're a Christian, you can do it. In fact, you must do it. You can reach out to that other man that works downtown with you and invite him out to lunch and talk about the things of God. You can do it. You can call up that single mom in our congregation that is struggling to keep all of those plates going at the same time and volunteer to come over and watch her kids so you can have a night of rest. And you share the gospel as you leave Tucker. You can do it. You can call up another woman in this congregation and ask if she just wants to have dinner at your family's house. You can show up here on Sunday mornings and seek not to be served, but to serve and look for people that you can reach out to, talk to, and turn the conversations to Christ. Don't just have meaningless conversations. You can do it. Say, but what if they ask this question? What, what What if I don't know how to answer this? Well, what do I say if this or what? You make it all complex. But if you know Christ, you know enough to minister. If you're a Christian, you know Christ. Make it so complex. I think about it like it's baseball. Baseball is really a pretty easy game. We can make it incredibly complex. There can be double shifts, and there can be intentional walks, and there can be balks, and there can be obstructing the runner's base path, and there can be all kinds of different things. It's really quite simple. It is just hitting, running, catching, and throwing. That's it. Christian ministry, we can make incredibly complex, but it's very simple. It's just loving God, loving His people, and loving the world connecting those three. That's all it is. Love God, love His people, love His world. Very simple. You can do it. I can do it. By His energy that He works within me. And such a life of service begins to dominate the Christian's life as sheer he grows in maturity. The more and more We see our entire life as a life of service lived unto God. It is evidence that you and I are growing more and more in the likeness of Christ. Younger men will come to me on occasion and ask, uh, how do you know if you're called to pastoral ministry? Probably had 30 plus of those conversations over the years. And I always lead them through the, the three kind of confirming processes. Do you have this sense of inward call? Is there a burden on your heart to, to be a pastor, that inward call? There is what the book of church order says, the manifest approbation of God's people is the second thing. I love that. Manifest approbation, the manifest the, the approval of God's people. Have God's people sat under your ministry? Have they heard you teach or preach or lead or counsel, or, and they've said, you know what, you do have some gifts that we could see in the ministry. People approve. And then the third is a church court eventually comes along, either a presbytery or a local church congregation, and they call you to a work and say, you know what, not only do you have this inward sense of call, not only do some people that you've ministered to say that they can see the gifts in you, but we as the church recognize that you're gifted for this and called. But that's not where I stop. I always ask this question. Do you want to give your life as a life of service? All that you are to God's people in His church. If you think that you're climbing the Christian social ladder by becoming a pastor, you're misunderstanding. looking at a life of service. 
serving God, serving his people, serving his word. Him to be first among us must be last of all. what Paul does with his life. That is what he did with his life. If you love me, Jesus asked, then care for my sheep was the charge. Ministry is just service. It's a joy and it's a delight, but it's a life lived in humility. A life where we all recognize that our life is not our own. I hope we as a church as you have done that for 50 years, we continue to live that way and we would live that way even more so as we conform more to the image of Christ and suffering Savior. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we are thankful. Thankful that we have a message to proclaim because it has been proclaimed to us. When Christ came into the world for sinners, that this hope that is in us, hope of glory, that is fixed, that is assured, we pray that we would be those who live in light of this calling that we have received in Christ. We would proclaim Him to the rest. We would seek to see others around us and ourselves grow in maturity unto Christ. Truly, he is worthy of all that we are and all that we can be. It is for his glory we pray all of these things.